Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. On this week's episode, I speak with co-producer of the Wild Honey Orchestra, brilliant bass man, an oft-consulted wizard at True Tone Music, and all-around stellar fella, David Jenkins. We talk about his early life as a child of show business parents, his early fascination with music, his many years with the Fockers at Cantor's Kibitz Room, balancing work in music retail with being a working musician, and how music profoundly connects us all. We also speak a bit about singer-songwriter Zach Nielsen, son of Harry Nielsen, who passed away recently. A soulful talk with great company. Enjoy! Here's me and David. And here we go. Hello there, David Jacob, Hello. my friend. Hello, Dana. How are you? It is really, really good to see you because it has been, I, it, uh, has it been a million years yet? Because that's kind of what it feels like. It seems like it. It's been at least a year. Right. Even though it probably feels more like five or 10. Yes. And you, like um, a few of my other guests in previous episodes, are one of the, uh, one of the kibitz room mainstays and that's how yes, i am a fokker we know each other yes fokker's friends of Cantor's kibitz room right and uh and i and i and we'll talk about um i do want to start kind of at the beginning let's start okay. back back in the very beginning because you're from you're from jackson heights new york right yes i yes you're i am a california guy well i mean i when i say i'm from jackson heights new york i mean i was born actually born in Manhattan uh, in a hospital that's no longer there. Um, and then my mother and father lived in an apartment in Jackson Heights. And that's where I was for the first couple of years. And then uh, continuing on with our story, uh, my folks were both involved in the touring company of a Broadway show called The Great White Hope. Um, my father was acting in it and my um, mother was working on the production. Um, although my mother had also been an actor as well. And uh, so we all left and went on the road and it was explained to me that, you know, we were going on this trip and, you know, I kind of had to, you know, I was sort of almost from a 
I mean, I must have been two and a half years old. It was like put in with the adults, like this is what's going on. It's like you have to learn how to, you know, when it's time to go to the bathroom. All you know, it's like all this sort of not, like not hurry up and become a man, but it's like yeah, we're taking the baby with us, you know. Like and you so got packed up in a trunk and and put pretty much. They, and then we like the gypsy life. They didn't. I didn't go to every city. They would park me like we had family in Philadelphia that I stayed with for a bit. There was a long stretch in Chicago that I have vague memories of and then you know the show to show made its way out to california and then we landed in los angeles mm-hmm. shows over eventually my folks marriage was over my dad moved to san francisco my mom and i stayed here in hollywood so i've been here in la since 1970 okay so, so i'm really i'm really a native just not by birth but right. pretty much right you know and then your dad was paul jenkins who father is a character, character actor named paul jenkins yeah and your mom, what was your mom's name? My mom's name, she's still with us. Her name is Jane Jenkins. And my mom uh, just recently sort of officially retired. She uh, did a lot of other things before, but around 1976, 77, got into casting for motion pictures um, and did that for 40 plus years. And she's got a very lengthy, uh, as they say, you can look her up on IMDb uh-huh. and also authored a book about 15 years ago called A Star is Found. About her uh, career, uh, casting motion pictures. Yeah, so you had you you kind of had the quintessential Hollywood upbringing in a way. Yeah, I'm a I'm a showbiz kid of a of a sort for sure. Um, yeah, I mean I uh, when we were when we came out here, my mom, <clears throat> who had done a lot of different types of jobs in New York, working as assistant and coordinator and all kinds of stuff, she was just working you know various secretarial jobs, and then I'm not quite sure how. It ended up, but she got one working for Barbara Streisand and John Peters as their assistant on uh, A Star is Born. Oh, yeah. And um, then, uh, so at that time, I must have been eight years old, I guess, eight or nine. And um, that led to uh, the director of A Star is Born, was a guy named Frank Pearson, who uh, took a liking to my mom and asked if she would come with him to work on his next picture, which was called King of the Gypsies, um, which uh, sadly in between the, um, in between the uh, cast and crew screening of A Star is Born where there was a special thank you credit to my mom at the end. After that, when she told John and Barbara that she was gonna be leaving to take this job working for Frank, um, they had her name removed from the picture, uh, but they didn't ask back for the poster or the gold paperweight that was given out to the crew, but uh, it did take wow. the name off the movie, thank you credits, oh. which was one of the first things I remember about as a line that I've used many times on Tuesday night, it's called show business, not show friends for a reason. Right, yes. <laughs> not so- my line, but it's one that I think usually shows up. It's just the most opportune moments. But anyways, that led to my mom working with actors and realizing that she knew faces and could place things. And then an old, uh, an old boyfriend of hers. I should backtrack a little bit. Um, after my folks split up, my father moved to San Francisco, ended up meeting an actress who he was in a play with, a revival of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. which led to the movie eventually being made. This was a revival that was very popular in San Francisco with the rock and roll crowd. Yep. Stories of my dad hanging out with the Jefferson Airplane people and all the hip North Beach types, et cetera. But uh, my dad was playing McMurphy and the woman he married was playing Nurse Ratched. True story. Uh, They married. She had a child from a previous marriage who became my stepsister. But my 
mom down here uh, reacquainted herself with someone she had known before, which was Ralph Waite, who played John Walton on uh, the show of the same name. So we moved in with John uh, Walton, we moved with Ralph. You became and part, Waltons in a and part of my childhood was spending many days after school and on uh, holidays going to the Walton set, knew all the cast and all that stuff. But interestingly enough, they broke up and reconnected when Ralph was directing a movie. He asked my mom, uh, you know, hey, would you work on the casting of this for me? And she was like, yeah, but you got to pay me something. It's like, I got David to take care of. And so they worked something out, but she actually got a single card feature film casting credit for this movie called On the Nickel that Ralph directed. And so then it made it easier for her to get a job going back to being an assistant on a couple of the TV shows at Universal. I think Kate Loves a Mystery and another one. Uh, and then through another friend, she was offered a chance to go and work uh, for a woman named Jennifer Schull. And Jennifer was a casting director who had worked uh, on some big movies. She was hired by Fred Roos and Francis Coppola to come work at their new venture, which was American Zoetrope. Zoetrope, yeah. So she took, Jennifer took her assistant, Janet, who became my mom's partner later in their business. And my mom, on the same day that she went to her boss and said, I've got this opportunity to go work for Francis Coppola. And it's like, well, you've got a job here. I think that morning, one of the TV shows was canceled. And later that afternoon, the other TV show they were working on was canceled. So she was immediately out of a job. She's like, well, I guess this is a sign. Yes, it's working I'm out. Going to work. So <laughs> going she goes to, to San Francisco. No, she didn't go to San Francisco. Oh, that was Francis moving here, like setting up shop in LA. I see. Even though Zoetrope had been based in, San, in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. But this was when Francis came here, bought an old studio that was uh, called Hollywood Center and is now again, it was on Las Palmas. And that's when he was going to build his whole old style movie company. Like he was going to have a repertory of actors and, you know, use all the same elements to keep, you know, they were making uh, at the time it was like, he was making one from the heart. Uh, they were doing Black Stallion and Hammett and Escape Art. There were all these movies where he was giving people like Vim Vendors and Caleb Deschanel, and he was helping David Lynch develop a movie that never got made and they had all this stuff going. And it was, a, I used to go hang out there after school and it was fascinating, you know, to see all that, you know, to go, I mean, I'd been to movie sets and TV sets and stage plays, but to go every day to a movie studio lot where my mom was working and hang out. And, you know, I met Francis and his family and, you know, that was a very interesting time, you know, especially to be a 11, 12 year old kid, you know. So were you at this point thinking, given your heritage and given the environment that you're growing up in, are you thinking that you want to be an actor at this point as a, a 10 was, year old? You know, I was never really interested in acting myself, um, but I certainly understood it a bit more than the average person. And I knew that, you know, my dad would go and, you know, put on a costume and go be a priest or a teacher or a bad guy and robbing a bank or whatever and I would see him on TV and I would go to set sometimes I mean when when I was a kid you know when he moved down here with his second wife and they, she was an actress as well um you know so I would go with my stepsister we would go to you know um the Barney Miller tapings and all kinds of stuff just like whether they were working or not just people they knew they were hanging out you know we also for people that know LA in the 70s there was a great hangout on Sunset near Crescent Heights called Schwab's it's a very famous old uh, drugstore, you know, lunch counter restaurant where 
many people were discovered, but it was like a, a working actor hangout. Mm. Kind of like later on, you know, the farmer's market was like that or Silver Spoon Cafe or all these places where actors would just hang out, read the trade papers and shoot the shit and tell each other, you know, oh, you got something going on. It's just like, you know, being, you know, being fellow players together. So I loved all that, but I was obsessed with music from the time I was like three or four years old. I was looking through my mom's record collection and putting on Beatles and Bob Dylan and Joan by, you know, all, all the music that she had and absorbed into that. So I was fascinated by music much more than, you know, acting. So that's how music came into your life is that as a three or four year old kid, you latched onto your mom's music collection. Yeah, I looked through the it. records and I saw this, it's like, what's this? And it was the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper. And I took the record out and put it on. And I was like, you know, and the same thing, I'd go up to visit my dad and his wife in San Francisco and I'd listen, they, there were records up there too. And, you know, my stepsister and I would dance around to, we had a little dance worked out for Taxman and a little number worked out for Here Comes the Sun or Octopus's Garden. And so we were, you know, we were both, you know, I mean, she actually ended up, Sarah ended up uh, later in life pursuing acting for a little while herself. Um, but I think that was something she was a little more destined to or drawn to um, or that she had an interest in it. I did actually have two, uh, I had a, I had a, a little walk-on part as an extra in a movie that I can't remember the name of it. Dennis Hopper was in it. Ralph was in it. We all went down to Mexico. I was playing with some toys in a scene, I think with Dennis. Um, and I remember uh, we were out like in the dirt, like in the mountains. I can't remember what the movie's called, but um, I did that. And then uh, much later uh, when my mom uh, was casting uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, mm -hmm. I had a audition of sorts to, for the role of Cameron, which I don't think I took very seriously which is probably why it didn't go any further. And it might've been a little awkward if the casting director's son, you know, was being seen as a contender for a part that should really go to a professional actor. So right, like I don't, Alan Ruck. <laughs> I don't, yes, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem with Alan Ruck taking my, my glory. <laughs> he did great. But, um, you know, other than doing a high school play that my friends wrote, which was based on a, the uh, Clue board game, I played one of the Parker brothers that was really just because I actually helped, maybe this is the casting thing, I helped them audition the actors for it. And I kept reading the other part. And after the second day, they were like, do you want to be in this? We'd really like you to be this part. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, you'd be great. It's like, okay. So I did the lead in a school play, but that was it. I just never had the, you know, I could never convince myself that it's something I yeah. wanted to do. So when did you first pick up an instrument and what was it? I think, um, well, there was an attempt, you know, after some early childhood obsessions with uh, Hot Wheels racing cars and dinosaurs and both Greek and Norse mythology and all kinds of stuff. And also, I should mention that at this time, I went to a school that was a K through 12 school here in Los Angeles. It was an experimental school uh, at the time called Area E based on one of the school zone, uh, Airy E Alternative School. And it was based on an English school that had been in existence in the 60s, but it was a K through 12 school. Everybody was bused there. It was down at the corner of Adams and Arlington. And it was a very creative place. So it's like your interests were allowed to be pursued because you could literally take any subject at any level that you were competent at. So I was, you know, in the fourth grade taking English with, with seniors, but taking regular fourth grade math. But then they could have a teacher offer an elective course on the history of rock and roll 
take my sign me up right wow so it's like i'd go every you know wherever the class was at, and it's like he would just play records and talk about music so just furthering my session but i guess the first thing they tried was they tried piano lessons and i just could not get the hang of it with the coordination of the left and right hand with reading the dots on the page i just did not take to it so that didn't work um i kind of got interested in the drums and also my mom did have a guitar that i think she had tried playing at one point in the 60s and just never got into mm -hmm. a nylon string guitar that was in the closet so i got that out and was bashing on it and but the drums were really the thing that kind of captivated me initially that was like the keeper and then at that time um, i met a kid down the block who was into music and all the same stuff i was who was also into the drums and then we met another kid a year or two later who had a sister his, whose sister lived downstairs from me and guess what he played mm, drums. that's right the drums <laughs> but his dad was a professional musician and record maker and he was learning how to play guitar a little bit so they both learned the guitar I didn't take to the guitar, but then we bought a bass. And then that became like the thing that I would pick up most. But in your classic garage band configuration, you would either have two guitars and drums, or maybe sometimes you'd have guitar, bass, and drums. But, you know, we would all take turns. Mm -hmm. But that was really it. So probably when I was like 12, I was like moving from the, just to the drums and the bass. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, really the two things I'm best at. Yeah. So you're, 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 you're all about the, the foundation, the rhythm section, the heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can hear all the rest of it, and I have a real appreciation for the rest of it. I actually love keyboard instruments. You know, I I can't really play them, but I am fascinated by the sounds. I know quite a lot about you know piano and organ and all the traditional instruments, and I'm very knowledgeable about synthesizers and all the technology. I've just always been fascinated by it. Much in the same way, I mean, I I love the guitar. You know, I just I own a bunch of them. I just don't play them very well. Yeah, yeah. So, and you went to what you went to Fairfax High, right? Eventually, yeah. So after I left my experimental school at sixth grade, I decided I should try being at a proper school. So I go to a high school called John Burroughs, where it was like 2000, it was like way more crowded and talk, calling your teachers by Mr. or Mrs. and mm -hmm. bells and regiments. So that was a big adjustment. But at the same time, I had my two best friends from my neighborhood. And we were already playing music together in the garage. It's like, so my social world wasn't really ever about school so much because my life outside of it, you like, it did, they didn't overlap. Like I never went to school with either of my best friends and I never played music with anybody that I met at school. Like it was always separate. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I did go to Fairfax as you know, did a lot of people. And in my time of going there, um, one of the younger classmen uh, was Rami Jaffe, whose older sister Belinda and I were the same age and we knew each other. Mm -hmm. And also uh, briefly for a period, um, oh, I think Jason Nesmith went there for a minute and a few other people passed through there. And, you know, there was a lot of, of course, music history. A lot of musicians had gone to Fairfax, growing up in that neighborhood, going back to Phil Spector and Herb Alpert, and then up through, you know, the Chili Peppers time and the um, Guns N' Roses or a little bit of that LA Guns. So yeah, it was definitely a musically friendly environment. There were a lot of people in bands. The, the 80s metal band Warrant started in my high school, actually three guys who began it and uh, none of them made it to the final uh, professional phase of the record deal, but they started it at school. 
So, mm-hmm. And yeah. it's interesting because Rami is one of those people who is a common thread through all of the folks uh, from the kibitz whom I speak with. And yeah, Rami, yeah. of course, is a Foo Fighter now. Right. And uh, But, you know, it's funny. One of the things, and again, Rami is somebody who I knew, but he was a little bit younger and also, you know, in a different, uh, kind of in a different world socially. But he had a band at the time called Shades of Black with a couple of guys that I knew from school as well, one of whom I ended up being in a band with after high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rami always wanted to jam, was like always into like learning. And he was really, you know, there was the difference between some guys there who just wanted to play because it was cool or they want to meet girls or they want to impress somebody or whatever. But Rami just had this natural thing of like, he was just bitten by the same bug that a lot of people who you just look at them and you know, they're lifers, you know, they're never going to not play mm-hmm. whether they, you know, make it to a level of success or recognition or not wasn't really the case. And that nobody was really thinking about that kind of stuff back then. You know, that was certainly not on the horizon. <laughs> right, yeah. And you know, and you know, Josh Lewis from Warren, right? Yeah. Well, Josh and I went to high school together and Josh is one of the guys that, you know, with, along with Max and Adam that started that band. And then, you know, they, of course, you know, post high school, things really took off for them on the local scene where all the Sunset Strip metal music was happening. And, you know, but it's like bit by bit, you know, they all got replaced. And like when the band got kind of taken over by Janie Lane, it's like about a year before the record deal, he was like, he kind of 86, Josh. I think he just basically needed everybody to be under his thumb. Right. Be subservient to him is one story that I heard. And, yeah. you know, it's like that he was going to be the focal point of the band and mm-hmm. he had the big power ballad with uh, heaven and all that stuff. So it's like, you know, about a year. I mean, when Josh was still in the band, we went to see a show um, with my friend's dad, who was the guy that kind of was our mentor, a guy named Jerry Riopel, who was a record maker. Yes. And, uh, who, uh, speaking of which, he had worked in the 60s under Phil Spector's production company, kind of by his side, learning the ropes and stuff. And Jerry was like, you know, Josh's band is going to get a deal. It's like, you know, they've got, you know, it's, they got it together. Sadly, they did get one, but without Josh. And then it kind of all went, you know, pear, as the English say, it all went pear-shaped oh, eventually because all those guys. It pits up, as they say. Yeah, because those guys all got kind of put into the grinder of, okay, here's how we're going to do it, you know, so. Mm-hmm. But Josh might have benefited from having that experience then. You know, he kind of never, he didn't have it like the full package like he got close with you're in a hot band that's playing sold out club gigs and getting you know see what that's like and learning your crap but it's like he didn't get to go to the next stage so but well, not yet anyway but yeah, uh, you know it is it's what it, it's it's all different and it's show business yes very much so it's it's really it's kind of it's kind of ruthless and oh yeah so when did your association with the kibitz room at Cantor's deli begin well, here's what's funny about that. You know, of course, growing up in that neighborhood is I basically lived in the same couple miles spread of L.A. most of my life. Mm-hmm. With a brief sojourn to staying out and we lived in an apartment in Venice Beach for a few months after my folks got divorced. And then when my mom and Ralph lived together, we lived up off of uh, Mulholland. Mm-hmm. But I pretty much lived in this zone that's like roughly between the farmer's market and Pink's hot dogs uh-huh. most of my life here in LA. So Canners was just, you know, that was the place to go and hang out and go there after you'd go see shows or play gigs or whatever, because it was open then 24 hours. And funnily enough, you know, I guess in my time 
at this point, you know, I was in, I don't know what band I was in. Uh, maybe I wasn't even in a band of that. I think I was playing with my friend, Andrew Sandoval, who's a singer songwriter. And we were doing like a kind of guitar um, pop music. But when I would play a gig, it's like, I would go to Canners afterwards to unwind or to like have a late snack. Mm-hmm. And I would ask to be seated as far away from the music as possible because I just couldn't take any more cacophony or crazy. I had no idea what was going on inside the bar other than the fact that there seemed to be a lot of people in there and they were always doing some endless version of Neil Young's, you know, down by the river. Right. And what year was this? This would be, you know, whenever it got going, like early nineties, it was like when it was kind of in its, you know, the full crazy, like, you know, people all lined up and it's like, you could still smoke indoors and just, you know, it was like bustling over there. I was just sort of like, I don't please, like I need a, I need a seat in the other room. Yeah. So what's funny is that a little bit later, um, I met Dan Rothschild mm-hmm. at a gig because uh, he was playing with a guy named John Bryan, who I'd become acquainted with, who's an amazing session musician and producer guy. Mm-hmm. And so I met Dan. And then a little bit later, I met J.J. Blair. I worked at a shop in Hollywood for a while in the mid-90s called Black Market Music. There was a crazy store that sold nothing but used equipment. This was pre-internet. Like, you know, people would get up at five in the morning when the recycler paper came out and like go buy something for 200 bucks from some old lady that was just getting rid of crap in her garage and then come and sell it to us and make a couple of, you know, it was like a very different time in the city where there was not a lot of knowledge out there of this is cool. Dude, the Beatles had one of these. It's like, you know, we were a store that sold nothing new, just used shit. So everybody came there. So one day JJ came in there, you know, very distinctive, tall, angular face guy with his long hair. (laughs) looking yeah. for a particular kind of amp that had just shown up and he's like unpacking the box and looking for it. And then I saw him one other time and I then I later, you know, saw him at the rehearsal studio that he co-owned with his buddy at Cole. But, you know, I didn't really know him, you know, but uh, funnily enough, those were the only two guys that I had any knowledge of other than Rami. So when social media started entering everybody's life, you know, when I joined Facebook, one of the first people that I, friended was Rami and then I saw some discussion where he was like hey man thinking of doing Tuesdays at the Kibbutz again it's time Mm -hmm. which I realized that was what was happening when I didn't want to sit near the bar was these guys playing right because all the other thing that was happening in the 90s for me is that I would go every Tuesday night to a club in Hollywood called Raji's uh, which is no longer there and I would see a band called the Continental Drifters which was comprised of people from a bunch of different bands from Bangles, Cowsills, DBs, Dream Syndicate. It was like, it's just a super group of kind of cool band, you know, ex, you know, ex band members that played. It was like the perfect blend of like Little Feet and the band and, you know, just the most amazing songwriters. And it was like, that was my whole social world was that. So, you know, I, I, I didn't go to the kibitz really because I was busy and I would play gigs sometimes opening up shows for them. So, when the kibitz thing started again, I was like, oh, okay, I should go. And, you know, weirdly enough, at that time, even though I had been working for a while at a guitar store, I wasn't really playing music at that mm-hmm. moment at all. In fact, mm-hmm. prior to that, I guess I should backtrack. I'm sorry I'm being a little rambling. Oh, here, not at all. No, it makes sense. not linear. An, out, <laughs> an outgrowth of, you know, I was, I quit my job. Um, I, I had a job for about a decade 
running the mailroom at a talent agency called Writers and Artists. It was like a mid-sized agency, sort of the kind that doesn't really exist anymore. But we had a number of well-known actors on series working in movies, a lot of writers and producers. It was a, you know, like a boutique agency that was uh, run by a really amazing uh, sort of pioneer woman named Joan Scott, one of the first female uh, agents to have her own business, uh, maybe the first in a way, I think. Um, and it was interesting because in the small show business world, uh, my first meeting with my new boss after I'd been hired on a temporary basis was to go into her office where she said, you know, I used to represent your father. I said, yes, ma'am. He mentioned that to me. She goes, yes. You know, I really like your mother. It's great dealing with her. I, I said, thank you. She says hello too. She's like, all right, that's all. And somehow I got away with working for this woman for nine years wearing, you know, jeans and tennis shoes and not dressing the part of wearing a suit to run the copier and do all the, you know, the whole trajectory of an aspiring showbiz person that was like, you need to look the part and work the whole, you know, hey man, you know, you're in the trenches. And I just, because I had music. Yeah. And that's really what I love doing. I just always looked at, that was my day job. You know, like I, once Friday at six o'clock came, it was like, I'll be back here Monday at 9 a.m. But it's like, I'm off the clock. You know, I don't have to worry. And if I went out at night and stayed out till three in the morning, by that time I was living on my own. So it's like, okay, just set your alarm. Make sure you get up and get in the car to, you know, come out to Westwood. So I love that she got the essentials out of the way. From yeah, the yeah. Show. Like, okay, your dad, eh, not so much. Your mom, I really like your mom. Yeah, that, that was basically <laughs> it. And um, so, uh, which I was informed by my father in advance that that's how it was going to go. Okay. So, so it wasn't like I didn't know what was coming. I see. They, they didn't part on good terms back when. So what's funny is that in a roundabout way, I actually was, I was pursuing music playing with, I mentioned my friend, Andrew Sandoval. We met a guy named Paul Rock who worked at Aaron's Records and um, he lived in a house in Hancock Park with two other people that had an unusually large living room that faced traffic. So having music in there, like playing records or couple of people with guitars didn't ever bother anybody mm -hmm. and so he thought we should do something with me you know we should have some people play in here so it went from just a couple of singer songwriters and passing the hat to at one point we did a thing with like a PA and a full drum kit and like 20 people playing Beach Boy songs and uh, you know we I think donated the money to like a you know a local musicians charity or something and then we thought yeah we, we should try doing this at a theater which one thing led to another we started doing these events. We mm -hmm. used the moniker Wild Honey after one of Paul's favorite Beach Boys uh, songs. And um, you know, we did events for uh, various, various charitable organizations, Sweet Relief, Habitat for Humanity, uh, Coalition to End Handgun Violence. So we did all these things. And one of the things that we did was um, we did a night of Kinks songs. And a friend of ours knew Dave Davies and his wife. They were living in Los Angeles at the time. He connected us meaning Andrew and myself and some other musicians with Dave's wife. And they said, you know, Dave will come and perform at your event. You can back him up on these songs. You just need to get him a guitar and an amp and everything he needs, all his stuff's in England. Okay, this is amazing. So we backed up Dave at this event, which was incredible, which also saw the reunion of the Plimsolls that night, which was, this is all happening in a 200 seat community theater that had 200 people out front about 200 people backstage in the wings packed in. And, uh, you know, it was a really amazing night among 
many other ones that we did then. And uh, a couple of years later, Dave got in touch with the drummer who worked at Tower of Sunset and said, oh, you fancy getting together again and playing some more? He's like, yeah, called everybody. And next thing you know, we were out on the road playing with Dave and his solo thing, which he'd never done before. Wow. And so I did that for four years concurrently. I was working at one guitar store and then I left that to go do, you know, the Dave thing. Mm -hmm. And then I worked, I went back and worked in TV production for a bit. I worked as a PA on a pilot. I worked on another, you know, like made for television thing. And then on unemployment, I'm selling my gear and borrowing money from my mom and all the cliches of every musician, uh -huh. you know, in LA or anywhere going through. And then, um, you know, uh, the other guitar shop job took off. My gig with Dave ended in 2001. And then I just wasn't really playing anymore. We weren't doing, um, after a year or two, it's like we stopped doing the tribute shows. Everyone's life, you know, kind of got a little too busy. Um, like I met the woman that I'm now married to. My other partner got married, had a baby. You know, it's like everyone's life just took over. Like we only have so much time to do, you know, job and a relationship and put on a show every, you know, yeah. six to 12 months. So I wasn't playing music at all. And weirdly enough, when my wife and I met, she was like, so you have instruments and you have all this music. And she was just amazed that somebody would have thousands of CDs and records and books about music, but like they never played. And I realized that that was kind of strange too. I just wasn't feeling it at the time. I just did not, I didn't have anything to do. It's like my old band, you know, we would get together once in a blue moon, play for fun, but that wasn't a real thing. And I just couldn't find anybody else to really play music with. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew a lot of musicians, but not, I was not at the level of, I can go play with you. It's like, you're professionally out there touring. It's like, I'm sort of, I'm, I didn't pursue more of that. So I wasn't in that zone. So weirdly enough, when I first went to Kibitz, um, getting back to that, uh, I was kind of intimidated because I just hadn't done it in a while. Right. Even though I was working at a guitar store and encountering musicians all the time and playing instruments to demo them for people and noodling and goofing off. I just wasn't, hadn't been like on a stage with a drummer and in, in, the, mo in the moment in quite a while. But I started to feel comfortable. And I, of course I recognized, oh yeah, I know Dan. And it's like, oh, JJ, right, that guy. I, didn't, I knew who Morty was because I'd seen him around, but I didn't know him. I didn't know Jordan or Rick or anybody, but they were all, I, I cannot stress enough, also incredibly welcoming and just you know especially dan you know i always look i've always even today i always looked at kibitz as like dan's gig and i'm the fill-in guy or one of the fill-in guys and i'm always happy to get handed the bass or be asked to come and play but i've never considered it to be my thing and you know i know that it's gone through permutations over the years and the rami days it was like footloose and fancy free and he just wanted people off the street to pick up. And then at a certain point, it's like, we'd like a little more structure mm -hmm. to the craziness, but I sort of saw the face of that, but I started to get more comfortable and would get up and play and just realize what was going on. It's like, Morty wants to keep the train going with the songs and just watch the singer and focus on, you got an audience of people out here. You know, uh, what's the line Alex uh, Labyrinth told me from his old boss at a bar. It's like, asses and glasses. It's like, I want asses on the dance floor and I want glasses in their hands yeah. full of the drink they're buying from me. It's like, I realized, you know, like a lot of people that are music geeks or music nerds, you know, you have your 
arms folded and you're sort of like, I know what's cool. And it's like, I think this is great. And you know, oh, I hate this, whatever. And I'll tell you this, two things happened that really kind of cured me of that. One was kibitz on Tuesday nights because I realized that people were responding to what was being played, not, not asking, is this cool enough for me to dance to? And the other thing was my wife loved music, but literally had no connection to anybody playing or singing it. As I started to introduce her to musicians that I knew, and then she got into their music or discovered their bands, or we would go see certain bands all the time together, she began to make a correlation between people playing music and getting to know them. But before she would just learn a record backwards and forwards from driving around in her car mm -hmm. and never even consider that, you know, there was a story behind this or why someone made it. But also she had zero prejudice about, she just loved things that had a heavy bass drum rhythm thing with some kind of dark, clever, you know, twisted lyric on top, you know, but she listened to all kinds of music and I exposed her to stuff that I loved that she didn't know. We both saw some commonality of, we both loved Elvis Costello. As it turns out, I was friends with the guys in his band. So we started going to a lot of those gigs together. And they had a side project called Jack Shit that we would go all the time. I mean, you know, we just learned. So what, I, what I'm trying to emphasize here is between rediscovering music through my wife's ears and also rediscovering music through what happened at Kibitz, not even so much on stage, but what was happening in the audience that it's like people just responded to. It's like, yeah, that's my jam. It's like, and you realize it's like, that's what you're doing. Like you're playing music for people. Right. You're not playing music to impress the one guy who's like, dude, you did the long version of that song from the English single. It's like, yeah, we know that there's three people here that got that reference, but you want to see people dance into brown sugar. Right. You, know, you want to see even, people responding. Because these, so many of these people, the aforementioned Dan Rothschild, whose dad was Paul right. Rothschild, of course, producer of The Doors, Janis Joplin, right. and so many others. And then we've got J.J. Blair, Grammy Award-winning producer and amazing right. musician. So you've got these huge, huge names, but they're really there to enjoy and to have other people enjoy. Right. They're just there to, they're just there to cut loose and have fun and have, be it not the day job and not the regular thing. And, you know, I mean, if I could say this, I think that, you know, I know that that in its second incarnation has been going on. I mean, no one quite exactly, but let's just say a good 12 years, right? I think Maybe 2009 13. was when it kind of reconnected yeah. again. So, you know, obviously year off for, you know, bad behavior. Um, but, uh, you know, I, obviously we all hope that in the physical form that that can restart at some point. I mean, the last few months of those guys playing on Tuesdays up at JJ's to do kind of all day sucker, mm -hmm. doing it with a sort of, you know, using this format, but changing it. I get the, I get it. Not everybody could participate, but also it's nice to sort of see it bring a deeper, broader crowd because they can all watch from around town or around the country or the, around the world. people that check in from overseas. They're checking it out. So I think that's great, but I, I can't emphasize enough that the sense of community, you know, like I said, I was very insular growing up with music. I knew I was in a band with like two best friends and, you know, we've got eventually got another great guy to play drums and, but we didn't know other bands. I mean, like my friend's dad turned us on to a lot of great music because he was in the music business. 
our drummer that we eventually got, his dad was in Paul Revere and the Raiders, was like best friends with Ringo and Keith Moon. So he had an amazing musical upbringing and he knew a lot of music, but it's like, we just didn't really know a lot of other musicians our age. And to, to go back a little further, when I was a kid, you know, my buddies and I, I mean, we made a demo tape in my friend's bedroom on a Porter studio, four track cassette recorder in 1980, okay, that we, you know, sent around to clubs in Los Angeles. And we actually got a gig at a health food restaurant called the Natural Fudge Company, which is long gone. And then we got a gig at the Troubadour. So we had to get a drummer because we couldn't keep taking turns playing drums. But I started playing gigs in clubs at like 14 years old, playing the Troubadour, like with, you know, someone's mom or dad dropping us off with our gear at the door and then getting us in. And like we were making, I mean, we were getting all of our friends like to come there or like their parents would bring them if it was a show that was all ages. And like, we were making a couple hundred bucks every time we'd play. We mostly do originals. So we didn't know how to play anybody else's songs except we could figure out like Can't Explain or, you know, we could figure out like a simple Who song or something, but we just learned how to do our own music. And that was like my world. So that insularity probably helped us on one level, but hindered us on others. So realizing that Morty and Jordan and Zevon and all these people had lived a parallel existence to mine just with a little more access to certain things or maybe a few more famous names dropping by your gigs or whatever, but it's like basically just this parallel life in Los Angeles of you're a bunch of geeks that love the same music and are going to all the same shows. I mean, Jordan and I have talked about this, that we were probably at so many of the same things throughout the 80s and 90s it's just, I didn't make the, ever make the connection that who, you know, I, I saw the name of this band playing, the Imposters. Oh, they must be Elvis Costello fans. It's mm -hmm. like, I knew about them, but I never went to see them, you know, and I, I didn't know, I knew Rami, I'd run into him. I remember when he's like, yeah, I just joined this band. It's kind of a weird trip. It's like Bob Dylan's son is the singer and, you know, huh? all these people are coming to check us out. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really cool. The next time I ran into him, it was like, they were getting ready to make what would be their breakthrough record after, the first one didn't work out and it was like at some gig, you know, and it was just sort of like, you know, they're trying to get it together and just you're periodically running into him. And of course, I guess at that time, you know, Kibitz was and wasn't happening depending on what was going on. I just never tapped into that. Had I, you know, done that earlier, I think I did one of Rami's birthday party jams once where probably some of those guys showed up at the Viper room or something. And I was on stage playing with a couple of them and I didn't know who they were and they didn't know me. And then again, it's like, however many years later, we're all sitting, you know, down having a sandwich. And it's like, wait a minute, have I met you somewhere before? You know, that's what, I mean, I think that's the thing that's so special about that. And I know there's, you know, people that have come to it and it's like, I want to get up and play. And it's like, you just got to feel the vibe, you know, and it's weird. It's like, it's crazy loud cacophonous noise. We don't start till late. It's like going in there with like, you know, you need combat gear sometimes to like get in. But, you know, now of course, or I want to say now, prior to March 2020, so many other jam night type things sprung up in LA, mm -hmm. but that's never what I looked at Kibitz as being. It wasn't an organized, like, you'll be playing Carry On My Wayward Son at 1019. Right, and right. And you'll be Not off like stage at 1027, you know? I think, look, I, you know, those other things that happened up at the Viper Room and the Whiskey and the Bowling Alley and all that stuff, it's like, I get it. I don't know if any of that stuff is ever coming back you know, necessarily, but, you know, there's a difference between people that want to just 
like I need to get up and show you that I'm that I look good in tight pants and I can be hired to be your new guy, you know, playing bass in your band. That's one thing. And that's not, you know, trying to be derogatory or pejorative, but it's like, but a lot of that is just people out there on the hustle, the grip and grin doing the Hollywood shuffle. You know, that's, I know that's what it is. I don't look at Tuesday nights at Canners as being that at all. I think some people that have shown up thinking that's it because they heard that so-and-so might be there or so-and-so would show up. It's like, you know, for a while, years ago, Waddy Wachtel and these guys would have this gig at the joint. And, you know, it was always going to be some seriously good musicians playing rock and roll covers and guys that have played with all these legends. And then every now and then it's like, yeah, Neil Young's going to stop by or Keith Richards going to stop by. Well, they're not going to tell you when that's going to happen. So if you're going there just to see the super famous rock star guy, right. you're going to be disappointed. But you should really just go because every week they're going to be great. I mean, you know, that guy, Jamie Savko, that sings with Waddy, there isn't a better rock and roll straight out like ACDC Led Zeppelin style rock and roll singer that I've heard in L.A. in ages. I mean, no one, no one might know who that guy is, but if you want to go out and like hear some straight out rock, that guy is as good as anybody I've ever heard. So. And then the other thing is that is that uh, the, the kibitz room on Tuesday night with the Fockers is uh, right. the captain at the helm usually is Morty Coyle. Before right. Morty, who of course, uh, he does this amazing thing, which is he's able to seg because all of you are such musicologists that you seem to have this sort of telepathic connection whereby you can you can you can shift gears on a dime. And he has this this brilliant ability to make it seamless. And it's almost like uh, allowing the balloon not to touch the ground, keeping the balloon up. You know, it's, fun it's funny you should mention that because I think, I don't know what it was like in the old days, but I know that kind of coming back into it, I think because Morty had been doing so much DJing mm -hmm. over the years that he kind of loved that flow of just what's going to go into the next thing and what's going to keep the ball bouncing for as long as it can. But I think also there's a commonality. I literally to this day, I hear songs and I start hearing what we could play over it or right. I cannot, you know, I can't, I can't not sing. Um, what's the, uh, um, uh, uh, there's a band song that Morty always sings a Zeppelin song. It's like, I literally can't hear, you know, a clash song that doesn't go. It's like, there's, it's like, there's, there's Sieg's, that he's so clever at doing that now every time I hear a record, I'm like, I start singing the other riff in my head over it. Yeah. And I, I think that's great because it shows how much music cross sections and how many things fit together. But I will say one of the other things that's funny is that, you know, I'm not a trained musician at all. I mean, I had some guitar lessons to learn a little bit of stuff as a kid. I don't know how to read or write music or read notation or any of that stuff. You know, some of the people that play on Tuesday nights are, you know, trained like Berkeley school trained or seriously know their harmony and theory. They can, you know, totally do all that stuff. I am an ear. What record does it sound like? I mean, I'm not as much of a novice, I guess, as I think I am. I do understand a little bit, but not nearly as much as some of these other guys. But I know what feels right or sounds good. And I think that if we have, the, you know, somebody heard me play drums one night and it's like, you're a parts guy. Like, you know, exactly like you know that that fill has to be right there before the chorus. Huh? So well, that's what I mean. I hear in the record, he goes like, no, that's, it's like, in other words, you know, that's your touchstone is 
look, I'm an okay drummer. I mean, I don't ever want to get up there and play more than a song or two unless it's my birthday or whatever. But, you know, the truth is, is that a lot of the reference points that we have to music, we find the commonality that people know it. And some people have their party pieces and their things that their go-tos that, yeah. you know, this is the song I love singing, or it's like, hey, let's do this because I know I feel good doing it. But mm-hmm. I've also been, I've been up there in some very strange high wire act, you know, standing in front of everyone naked style moments of just going for something that it's like, if you, you know, a friend of mine told me a very funny story um, about, well, 10, 12 years ago when Roger Daltrey assembled a band to do solo shows. And he sort of, he hired basically some LA, you know, LA cats. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the guys that um, ended up, my friend who works for The Who worked that gig as well. And he said, you know, the drummer was coming at him with like, here's what I need for my in-ears and I need a click for that, blah, blah, blah. And he was like coming from his other gig and he just told him, my advice to you is to not think about any of that stuff because Roger doesn't work that way. And when they got into rehearsal, Roger was looking at him and it's like, and then we'll do this. And they're like, how many bars? And Roger's like, I don't know. I don't think about it like that. Just watch me. We'll feel it. He's like, oh, and Roger's like, don't worry. I'm not afraid of looking foolish on stage. You know, and it's like, you have to recognize that in certain situations, all your training and your preparation goes out the window because it's like, that guy is leading you, whether yeah. you know it or not, or whether he knows it or not. It's like, he needs to feel it. Even if the other, even if this guy over there is your music director and he's in charge, and even if you're used to being the, follow me, I'll count it off. It's like, ah, you got to watch that guy. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the things with Morty. It's like, a lot of times drummers have, not looked at him and they've thought oh i'll do this it's like no i want you to play double time no 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 reggae it's like you got to watch him you got to look you got to feel it and that's the other thing too music is listening it's not just i'm in my zone and i'm blasting away i mean that's great fun too but you have to listen and it's tough up there with basically no monitors everybody's too loud that's part of the fun too but it's like that cacophony, you know, like I say, on those birthday nights or those theme nights where it's like the place is packed and it's like everything is jumping and it's like, you know, you feel the energy and you realize that back when, you know, people maybe had more time to go out at night, that that's what every Tuesday night used to be like because it was an exploding scene. But it can't be like that every night and that's okay. Some of my favorite nights there have been playing to five or 10 people that aren't even especially, you know, interested in what we're doing at the moment but we're interested and we're trying to draw them in and we're trying to get into a zone where maybe people want to get up and dance or maybe somebody has a birthday request or somebody's like my friends here from out of town play nxs okay sure you know if only we had a tip jar i also really love how how you know the the players change places, you know, like somebody would be playing drums and then Dave Goodstein will go up, he'll do drums and then it'll be somebody else. And then it's you and Jen Oberly trading off on bass or Dan or, um, and then of course we have my Brad Watson on organ and then we've got, you know, Jordan on keys and we've got, you know, this amazing, um, this, this, this trade-off that happens. It's so interesting because it's, it is very organic. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not predetermined. There's a sort of this un, unspoken signal that that happens. So that's half the fun as an audience member to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is. You know, I will say this, you know, just in looking back over my life as a musician, 
even though I, I haven't had a lot of, I really didn't have much formal training at all, but I did have a very cool guy named John Vester, who's a songwriter who's still teaching guitar, we're still in touch. And he kind of showed me a little bit about how chord charts work and laying out songs and we would listen to stuff. I would bring him, you know, I was like 12, 13 years old. It's like, I would bring in Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or King Crimson or something that I was into. And then he would like play me like a slowed down jazz arrangement of a Todd Rundgren song that he had done, or you know, he was playing in bars doing cover tunes, you know, a couple nights a week with his girlfriend, they had a thing. So it's like, you know, you begin to understand how things work, but also, you know, you learn that there are a lot of commonalities in music, even if you don't think there are, and you can learn something sometimes, you know, I, like I I joke with a friend of mine, who's a, a bass player that I respect greatly named Dan Schwartz, who has taught me a lot of stuff about bass, has never actually picked up one in front of me to show me anything but I have watched him play. We've talked about music endlessly, listened to music over the years. And I have learned things from him that I use when I play that I can't really even articulate, but I know people respond to it when they, when they hear me play. Not that I'm the world's greatest bass player. I think I'm a good musician. I think I just have the overall picture in mind, like what it all should be, not just I'm doing my thing. You know, I've never been, I mean, like most young, like a lot of young musicians, I had a period in my younger life where I wanted to get proficient and have chops and look like, you know, I knew what I was doing. When you get older and you realize that the art of playing a couple notes per bar or a couple notes per eight bar, it's just like, you don't need to carry the world on your shoulders and try and do everything. And that's part of the listening and the back and forth. But also I've really mostly only ever been interested in playing music with a vocalist and supporting the vocal. A guitar break is fine, a keyboard solo, sure, that's fine. Let's get back to the chorus or another verse or let's do the bridge. And, and instrumental music is great and I, I don't mind it at all. I have a lot of it here. I listen to it. I just don't, I like supporting a singer and you know whatever story they're telling, you know? And it's great on Tuesdays when it's a song that people really know and they connect with. And you're just basically, you're there. Yeah, you are kind of like a human jukebox to people, but that is actually a very, I'll, I'll say it. I think that's a noble thing. You know, people give a lot of lip service to, oh, you know, bar band and cliches of, you know, I was playing the top 40 and I can't stand this. It's like, you know what? If you can find a way to make a living at that and play music and connect with people to give them something enjoyable to listen to and dance to and forget their day-to-day -day existence to, I think that that's a valuable service. You know, you may not make a great living at it. You may not get out of it what you could have at another point in time when it paid better or there were more opportunities. I mean, certainly there's a whole other conversation we could have in another podcast about the seismic changes to, you know, anything related to music, film, television, the arts, and anybody making a living at it anywhere near like they used to all the glory stories you hear about the good old days and all that stuff but same time i don't see creativity going away i you know saw um uh speaking of the kibitz room old days you know jacob dylan's a customer of ours he brought his youngest son in who's like totally committed to the guitar and you know he's saving up his money to buy a better guitar now yeah that's an yeah, that's a great situation to be in the son and the grandson of you know professional musicians yes but it's like they can't make him want to be one and whether he ends up being one as an adult who knows 
right now, in that time between grade school and junior high, this kid is playing the guitar every day. Yeah. And he is into it. And he's really playing, not shredding. He's like playing songs and playing parts. And he's like, you know, I want to get a guitar that has this. And it's like he, he's learning it. And as long as there's an outlet for that and that can be encouraged, then that's great. I have no doubt that we'll see even further changes post-COVID and as the world shifts and people discover other things. And I hope that there's a return to the ability for livings to be made for people. But I also know that there will be a deeper appreciation for just the very art of getting together and jamming with your buddies and having a good time because all that stuff's been taken away mostly. You know, I know there's people that have still gotten together and done things. I know not everybody in the world hasn't been locked in an eight by 10 box, but for the most part they have, right? I did <laughs> want to ask you about uh, when you started at True Tone Music. Well, interestingly enough, I when I worked at uh, Black Market Music and I should, that was my second guitar shop job. Oh. My, one of my first jobs ever, uh, beside working for my mom, after school, like filing papers for free, uh, was um, I worked at a guitar shop in Hollywood called Freedom, like in 81, 82. And then uh, I kind of got the bug of being around musical instruments and stuff, it was great. So after Black Market, um, I met a guy who was a guitar repair person named Paul Flynn, who he and a guy named Russ Blake, they both worked in the repair shop of Ace Music in Santa Monica, which had been there since the 60s. Um, and then when I went out there, I got to know them a bit and then they said, you know, the brothers are retiring and selling this place. And it's like, we're going to get together with the sales guy, Ken, and we're going to try and find a spot here in Santa Monica and do a store. And I'm like, man, that sounds really cool. And I'd done some errands for them and was hanging out. And they're like, you know, because like the Dave Davies thing was like a couple times a year, I'd go on the road. We're making like a hundred bucks. A I mean, it was like no money. Yeah. So it's like, I was a professional, oh, music I was a professional musician who didn't own a bass amp because I'd sold it to pay the rent. And, you know, it's like, I'm living the dream, but it's like, well, hey, there's going to be a job at a guitar store starting. Okay. So that started in summer 98, like getting the physical space together. And then the fall 98, the store opened. And then for th my first three years of being the first employee, I would leave a couple times a year to do Dave gigs, but eventually the store started to be able to pay a little more money and the Dave work got less and less. And it was like, I should probably just stay here and work full time because I wasn't making the kind of connections where it's like this touring gig will turn into the next touring gig. I wasn't going to be getting up to the, you know, Rami Jaffe, you know, pro side guy level thing. Not that I wasn't a capable musician. I just didn't have the drive or desire to do it in the same way. I think because I'd always been used to having a day job and then playing music at night or on the weekends. So even though I didn't quite have that same dynamic, I never felt like, Oh, I have to leave the guitar store. It's like, no, this is cool. Right. Musicians come in here, hang out. I mean, I've met some of my favorite players, you know, working there. The guys uh, in this band, Jack Shit, who some of them play with Paul Costello, but Val McCallum, who also plays with Jackson Brown, great guitar player. We've become friends. I know Ry Cooter because of working at True Tone. He's become a good pal of the guys at the store. You know, David Lindley, all call, I mean, all kinds of guys like that. And that's one of the joys of working occupational hazard of working at a guitar shop is you will meet guitar players and bass players and you'll get to know some really interesting people. And that's actually expanded my 
music appreciation and my kind of offsite learning in ways that I, you know, I can't really articulate, but it's like, you will definitely learn something talking to a guy like Rye for five minutes about something that you don't even think is related to what you're interested in. But if you're hip to it and you're listening, you'll, you'll pick up some, some pearls, you know? You know, one of the thing, the consequences of, of being in love with music is that you, you discover community and you find community in playing, but you also find community, like you said, at the, at the guitar shop. Well, yeah. And that's the same thing with the oh. NAMM show, like all those extended visits there and the people there. And, you know, honestly, I have always been a friend of mine chides me about it, but I've always felt like there's kind of an international rock or, you know, music, brotherhood, sisterhood, community out there in the world. I mean, I'll give you a couple of quick examples of how things work in a very roundabout way. So my friend Andrew and I met a guy named Jim Lespiza who worked at Tower Sunset through another guy who was like trading videos of Beatles stuff with another guy. Jim was like a super music not you know, and then we met a friend of his who dated a friend of Jim's. Mm-hmm. It was a guy named Brian Kihu. At the time, Brian was just like, had moved to LA, worked on a record. Turns out he lived around the corner from me. We became friends. Then Brian got a job at the LA version of Black Market Music, where another guy that I knew named Damon Fox, who worked up on Sunset at a guitar store, also started working. Then I was hanging out there every day. I wasn't working at my other job or on the weekends. Then I eventually got a job there. I met a guy named Jeremy Stacy, who was an English session drummer who would come through town doing sessions, touring with Cheryl Crow, whatever. Years later, I find out when I'm working at True Tone that Jeremy has a twin brother named Paul that I never even knew about. Then Paul and I become friends. Then next thing I know, I'm driving Paul and Jeremy around one night in my car out to a club. And then they introduced me to Cheryl Crow and all these people at some party. And then it's like years later, you know, we're all at the Stacy's and I and my wife and Brian are at Abbey Road listening to a talk on the history of the studio based on his Beatles recording sessions book. And then we're all going out to have a curry afterwards. And it's like, you know, you can talk all you want about, oh, well, you know, you meet this guy. It's like, there is something going on there that bring, I mean, and yeah, the commonality of, well, you met at this place and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yes, that's true. But it's like, I mean, that's how things work. And that's what music really does bring people together in a way. My friend Dan has said for years, it's like, it's the best thing we do. Yes. Music is truly international. It goes beyond language. It touches people in a way. I mean, cinema and other forms do too. I mean, there's a language barrier sometimes, but it's like, there's a thing with music. You know, there's a very powerful, and and again, another hilarious thing. It's like, so I, when we were doing these Wild Honey events, again, starting in 2013, Mm -hmm. in 2014, we did an event based around the group Big Star. We actually just presented it. They already had it assembled. We kind of just staged it for them and our late friend Gary Stewart actually underwrote the whole event to launch a, a web venture that he was starting called Trunkworthy. So, you know, we had the Bangles and Amy Mann and all these people along with the 
surviving big star drummer Jody Stevens. It was an amazing night. Well, little did I know that in the audience for that was a girl named Gabby Lima, who was here on an exchange program from Sao Paulo, Brazil, taking a engineering courses at MI in Hollywood. Musicians Institute. As was uh, uh, two women from Australia, Marianne Window and uh, Monique Brumby, who were here on holiday, who were musicians that went, heard about the show and bought tickets. Now, even though Marianne and Gabby haven't met yet, although they know each other online, I am now friends with a woman who lives in Tasmania, a woman who lives in Australia, a woman who lives in Brazil, who has come back now multiple times to Los Angeles and worked on Wild Honey shows because Rick Torres introduced me to her when he was teaching at MI and then we're at, 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 we meet at NAM, but it turns out she knows who I am, that I take her with me to a rehearsal for our White Album show in 2015. And someone thinks she's working the gig and just asks her to patch in something to the board, which she just goes and automatically does because that's what she's trained to do is to be a sound engineer. Right. And then it's like, she's like, is that, it's, like, it's like, okay, you're in. Like now we're on, to, it's like, now you're a crucial part of our lives. And it's like, I can't see it any other way than it's just, this is where you end up. And then funnily enough, it's like, you know, she's loves all this music from the 90s and the alternative music scene from Boston. Who do I know? One of the preeminent writers in the Boston music scene who lived in LA for a couple of years, who moved back home, who connected me to guys that I had met on tour with Dave Davies like decades earlier, who now I talk to every other day and I've been back to Boston to work on their charity events. And they've come out here to, it's like, I mean, it's just, I know that's how life works for some people, but it's like the common thread is just the one thing, music. It's the- it literally brings everybody together from around the world in a way that I don't think anything else ever has. I mean, not music this is the, is the stream, result. all the streams leading to the ocean. Yeah, it's- Bringing everyone you know, together. And I think it's, you know, I think it's beautiful that, you know, I have tried, I haven't succeeded, but I will continue to try to rope in as many of the Tuesday night crew to my ventures with Wild Honey and other stuff that I do because I really dig all those people and I love to I love to mix it up and get other people involved. I have a pre-existing situation with folks that I go back decades with and my other family there that, you know, we have to make sure everybody gets, you know, their space. But at the same time, that's created new friendships and new relationships too that didn't really exist. But then you find out that it's like, who was I going to see play gigs 25 years ago? Rob Laufer. And who was his bass player? Dan Rothschild. Mm -hmm. And who was playing drums? Nick Vincent. Who's in a band together now? Nick Vincent and Dan Rothschild and Jordan Summers and Jeff Perlman, Uncanny Valley. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you just see the circle and you see the interconnection. You see people finding each other and coming back to it. I mean, you know, if anybody doubts that there's magic there, they're just not listening or looking in the right way. And I have learned so much, you know, from Gabby, from Marianne, from, you know, all the guys on Tuesday that, you know, have, give, I mean, literally that have give, had to me their instrument, like you play. It's like, you know, that my confidence as a musician has increased, you know, tremendously. And 
you know, that's coming from somebody who at one point, yeah, I was out touring with a certifiable rock star and playing some nice, you know, clubs and theaters and stuff. And I felt validated then, like, I'm like the last guy from the dudes I grew up with. That's like, I'm actually doing it. Like I'm on stage at the house of blues playing to a packed house and I can feel the place vibrating and we're playing. You really got me. And it's, that's the guy who wrote the riff and it's really cool. Yes. But is this it? Like, is this my gold watch? Like, will there be any, a lot of, well, we got this now, you know, it's, it's like, and so I, everything, everything I have gotten to do, every gig I've gotten to play, everything I've gotten to hang out at, whatever it is, I always look at it as like, if there's no more after this, I can feel satisfied that I got to do a lot of cool stuff. And I brought as many people along with me as I could. I haven't gotten to do everything I want to do. I've been slowly making an album for a number of years of a couple of original songs, some covers of old friends songs, and just some tunes I've always loved by people that have stayed with me for decades. You know, somebody already wrote the ultimate wistful breakup song about honoring what was in your past. Why do I need to better it? I just want to sing that song because I love it. So I did that and I've gotten some friends in to play on it and I'm still working on it. And I put it away for a long time because I got busy with life and other stuff. And then I, you know, played a little of it for some people and they were like, you should finish this up and do something with it. I'm like, okay, you're right. I should. And so that's kind of been, I haven't been able to do that much this year, but I've done a little bit of it. I'm not set up to do remote recording here, but you know, I've gotten a little bit of stuff done. Some people are doing things for me at, at their place where I had the tracks sent to them. So, you know, that makes me feel like there's still some collaboration going on, you know? Absolutely. And I really do always believe that, that uh, everything in its time, you know, because you can't possibly do everything all at the same time. No. You know, you, you, you do it when you can do it and when people are available and when these things, when, when these things happen. So, well, that's, um, the, that's the beauty of it. You know, life to me has literally always been about the journey, not about the destination. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, you know, I, there was a, there was a, a really great moment um, in one of these shows that we did in 1994. We did an evening of Brian Wilson songs at this little theater. We got Brian to perform mm-hmm. and he actually had like an all-star band assembled with Elliot Easton and Andy Paley and this guy and that guy. And, you know, they, they, they did fine. You know, it was like, obviously kind of thrown together at the time, but one of the other bands that played at that thing were a group of guys here in LA called Wonderments. And Brian was backstage and he heard these guys playing music from his then, you know, unreleased record, Smile, and was kind of knocked out like, you know, whoa, well, this is incredible. You know, like he took notice of something was happening. Well, they had a thing a couple years later where, you know, he came and sang a song with them at a radio thing that they did for, you know, some internet company. And then when he put a touring band together a couple years later, those guys became the core of his band. And they have been there for 20 years now as Brian wow. Wilson's band. And that isn't necessarily directly as a result of something that I did but it certainly didn't hurt. Same way that we met Dave Davies, same way that other people started bands or relationships or marriages or whatever. It's like you put people together and you let something happen and you make, you know, you you make connections that may take years to play out, you know? And that's one of the beautiful things about life. It's like, you know, we're all going to the same place eventually. We're gonna get X amount 
of years on this earth where we can do things. Mm -hmm. And if it all ended tomorrow, I would feel like I got to do a lot of cool stuff. And I got to see a lot of people realize a lot of their dreams. Mm -hmm. And I've you know, participated in it. I mean, you really can't ask for anything more. You know, I've never had an abundance of money or things. I mean, yes, I've got a lot of way too many CDs and records and books and magazines and instruments. It's true. You never but have never, too many. But I've never had, you know, a bunch of money in the bank or, you know, owned property or had a flash car or any of that stuff. It's not, you know, we've spent, we, we spend our money on the things that make us happy and give us, you know, our dividend of I can pull out a record from 20 years ago and play it, you know, when I drive to work and feel happy. I know I could also get it on some internet-based service, but that's not my vibe. And, you know, we just have to enjoy the fact that maybe we've all been reminded in this past year that, you know, some things have changed and maybe some things on one level might be over in certain aspects, but some other things are opening up in ways that we don't even know yet. And it's also giving people an opportunity to really savor some stuff. I mean, just as sure as there are musicians that are like, I'm done, like another year off, like I'm, I, can't, I can't go on the road, I'm too old. There are people who are gonna be like, you know what? Fuck it, I'll, I'll break bread with that guy and we'll do a handshake. Let's go out and do this while we still can have some fun, you know, yeah, making a living is great too, but it's like, there are people that have, you know, reevaluated certain things, you know, and looked at it in a way where it's like, you know what, what was I so hung up about that I couldn't do this before? You know, maybe I'll just do this now. Look, what was I so hung up about? Like, why should I finish my record? It's like, because I should, because I started it and I should complete it mm -hmm. and put it out so that people can hear it and decide whether they like it or not. It's, you know, no one needs another anything. We don't need another cable service, another hundred hours of, you know, programming of attractive young Canadian actors and a space opera with, you know, it's like, they're all the same, but whatever. It's right. like, look, people are working and they're making a living and like everything else. It's like, that keeps going. It's like, you know, the world doesn't need another album of guitar, bass, drums, keyboard music from a guy that's, you know, into the Beatles mm -hmm. or do they? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, I wanted to ask you about Zach Nielsen. And his well, you know, I was fortunate to know Zach a little bit on a casual level. I mean, I can't quite remember how we first met him, but we had some lovely nights, both um, hanging out with uh, Christina and Nicholas Guzman, and their beautiful family out in Glendale where they would have folks jamming in the living room. And then Zach also uh, participated in something that I helped out each year. My friend, Todd Lawrence, who goes by the name Milo Binder is a folk singer. Todd is a huge Harry Nilsson fan. And he and Willie Aaron and some other folks organized an annual Harry Nilsson birthday event. And uh, they became acquainted with Zach. And Zach would come and participate a little bit, play some percussion, tell stories. Zach sang a beautiful song a couple of years ago um, that he wrote about his father, um, that I believe there's a up today on Bandcamp. I think it's called, uh, Bigger Man. Um, there's a, a version of it that Fernando Perdomo and Jason Burke, two of our, um, mm -hmm. two of our Tuesday night regulars, uh, recorded with Zach, um, and the proceeds go to the City of Hope, uh, which is the charity that Zach uh, very much believed in. And, um, I believe today, is Bandcamp Friday, where all proceeds from Bandcamp purchases go either directly to the artist 
or directly to the charity of their choice in the case of City of Hope. And I think that's beautiful. I, you know, I knew Zach a little bit. Uh, we communicated occasionally online and like everybody else in his orbit, I was very touched by his honesty and sort of beautiful emotionality of these cancer karaoke videos. And, and it was essentially documenting the end of his time here on earth, you know, in a way that I think maybe gave a lot of people an insight into humanity that more people should be able to be comfortable with. You know, there's the great George Harrison song, you know, the art of dying is a thing, you know, you need to prepare for your end in a way that you can have as much nobility and control as possible. And I think Zach maybe did a service to people that they couldn't even comprehend they needed, which is to see somebody coming to grips with, I know what's coming and I just wanna get there, you know, without it being awful. Yeah. And it was hard, I know. And I heard, you know, I heard it in his voice, but I have to tell you that, you know, seeing him on stage at that night, you know, those nights saluting his dad's music, or he did, um, he did a, a bad finger thing with us uh, that Dan Matavina put together, uh, Zach Schaefer and Rothschild and Jordan, a bunch of the guys participated and Zach, you know, participated as well with the you know connection of his father having sung without you and all that stuff. And I just, you know, I think the thing about Zach, that he was a beautiful person that just loved, you know, it wasn't about, I'm the world's greatest drummer and I need to like be in your band. It was like, let's just play music and have fun and be, you know, it's like he really enjoyed the camaraderie and the socializing with people of just, you know, kind of discovering all these people that would be intrigued by him because they were fans of his late father. Yes, but also just another beautiful soul in the world, you know, another sweet human being that just enjoyed connecting with people and enjoyed his time here as best he could. I, you know, it's a cliche, but it's like, you really can't ask for more than that. That's right. You know? We're all, we're and, all going to the same place, as you said. And, and well, uh, it's true. And, you know, he got there sooner, you know, but he's on to the next adventure. I'm, as I said to someone today, it's like, I wish Zach could post some videos from where he is now and let us see what's going on because it'd be great to know, but we'll all find out what happens when we're not here. Hopefully, you know, I would love everybody in my life to get to live to be a hundred years old and just peacefully go to sleep and have their affairs in order and, you know, have it all be great. Just this past week, a guy I've known since I was 11 years old, had a pretty major heart surgery with a whole bunch of stuff. He's got like eight weeks of recovery. Thankfully, it looks like he's going to be okay. Same day, uh, my cousin in uh, Florida um, had a quadruple bypass. He's on the mend. It's like, you know, you take pause and you look at people in your life that you hope that they're going to be able to make it through. But, you know, by the same token, it's like I get up tomorrow morning and walk the dog and get in my car to go to the store and get into a head-on collision. It's like, I, you know, I don't want to. I'm right. not predicting my demise. I want to enjoy as much of my life as I can while I'm here. And I think that, you know, it's another good great thing about having animals in your life. It's like, you know, this little guy, you know, our little dog Shadow, he's 87 pounds, not little, but it's like this little guy has been a blessing to us and that we have this little person that just needs, I know, he just needs to be, you know, okay, it's time to walk. It's like, I got to poop. I got to pee. I'm hungry. Where are the snacks? Rub my tummy. You know, it's like, here, I'm going to lick your feet. You love it, don't you? Of course I do. Yeah. And, you know, this this past year, 
honestly, people should just appreciate everything about it that it's taught them, whether those lessons are apparent right now or not. You know, I know some people that are really struggling that just need to accept some things that, you know, they're being taught or told, myself included. You know, like I said, I have a difficult situation with an old friend that I'm trying to resolve that I may or may not get the outcome that either one of us want. It's kind of beyond my control at this point, but I feel okay about my part in it and what I've done. I'm not in a position to beat myself up on it anymore because I know I don't have anything to apologize for. However, the nature of me is that I want everybody to be friends and I want folks to get along and I want it to all be good. Yeah. That's just how I am. I've always been that way. So I, you know, I want it to work out. But, you know, we've also seen, like, like you have, I know we're going on a bit here, but um, we've seen some really amazing stuff happen this year. And people come together on things that, you know, maybe are, you know, beyond what they ever could have imagined they'd be thinking about or dealing with. And yet, that's kind of the point, right, is that we need to get to that deeper place of understanding and of seeing what we're all really about, you know. And I'm, you know, I love my Creature Comforts and my deluxe box sets of my favorite bands record that I have five copies of, but it's like, it won't ever, you know, replace a handshake or a hug or a conversation with a friend talking about that very same thing face to face or being you know, going back to like being 12 years old and seeing Star Wars or whatever, it's like you have those touchstones and it just, you know, treasure that stuff. That's what I, when I, when I was thinking about Zach the other day, it's like, you know, I knew we all knew it was coming. I was just like, you know, he's out of pain and he's on to the next adventure and we couldn't have changed anything. It was a very similar trajectory in some ways to a few years ago to a guy named John Wicks, who was a singer songwriter, a guy from the band The Records. It's a long struggle with very valiantly fought, you know, struggle with a few different types of cancers. And I mean, he was committed at a fundraiser that we put together for him. He was like, I'm going to get on that stage and I'm going to sing and play my songs. Like there was a standby of a guy that was going to sing his parts and a guy was going to play his bits, but it's like he worked his ass off to be able to get up at his own party mm -hmm. and perform, you know, his music. And it meant a lot. It's like, you know, that struggle sometimes is what we have to go through to give us the energy to get to what's next. And sometimes that struggle makes everything all the sweeter when you're finally able to do it. Like there's a little struggle behind you over your shoulder there. Somebody is just trying to, <laughs> they're just trying to get to the whole bed. You know? tuxedo monkey on the sofa, yes. Look at that little character. <laughs> that is Which, Jack. Oh, Jack more adorable. <laughs> Well, this has been thoroughly, uh, thoroughly groovy. I hope I, didn't, hope I didn't prattle on forever. I have a tendency and, to. And it's wonderful. And, and I want to thank you so much for doing this because, uh, you know, it means the so world. And, and uh, you know, you're one of the people who was on my list. So I'm I so appreciate that. Well, the pleasure is all mine. You know, I really, really enjoyed um, getting to talk to you and just air some of my, you know, lofty gobbledygook opinions about stuff. I mean, look, you know, one of the other things, too, I, I just in closing, it's like, this kind of communication where people are just sharing what's on their mind and they're putting it out there. It's like, you know, if one, a hundred, a thousand, whatever people listen to a podcast or listen to anything or read anything that somebody does, you may just get, you know, you may be the thing that makes the difference for somebody on some other level that they haven't really thought about. It's not about, 
what you know you think maybe it should have been or used to be it's like it's like this is what's happening now it's like i'd rather have a hundred people buy a record i made and love it yeah and a thousand people get sent a promo copy of it by a publicist and see it just trade it in to the cutout bin you know well and and Aton and i talked a bit about this um when he was on the show that you know we're 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 telling stories we're sharing stories and right. and that can bring joy and inspiration and you know maybe it gets people thinking about doing something different with their life because we've been kind of put on pause for this time and right. that's that's why conversations from here that's where where it came out of last august when i started it yeah no i i, I think that's fantastic i good on you for doing that you know Thanks for inviting me. Well, good on you for doing the show. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much to David Jenkins for thoughtful and inspiring conversation. And if you hear anything in the background, if you if you are listening very carefully, you might hear some rumbles of thunder and rain in Los Angeles. Amazing how that happens. Special thanks to Dave also for the track we are going to close the show with today. It is a cover of If We Never Meet Again by Jules Shear, and it's from David's forthcoming album. Personnel are David, of course, on bass, singing lead vocal, on drums, Elvis Costello's Pete Thomas, on guitars, Rob Laufer and Rusty Squeezebox, and on keyboards, Jordan Summers. Backing vocals are Vicki Peterson and Susan Cowsill. I hope you enjoy. Take good care of yourselves. Take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thank you so much for listening.
Your own luck You can't blindly fight your 